Somewhere along the way in life, we learn these little liturgies, little conversational liturgies. We employ them every single day with the cashier, at the grocery store, with the coworker. Every morning, you greet one another. We have certain things that we say, like, for example, good morning or good evening, hello, goodbye. And then there are liturgical responses to these liturgical initiations. Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? You occasionally meet that grammar snob who says, I'm well. Always feels condescending, doesn't it, a little bit? Like, oh, excusez-moi. Your well makes me feel not so good. Or well, I should say. We're talking uh, today about the reality that lies behind one of these liturgical responses. And that is this. How are you? Busy. Busy. Oh, so busy. Like crazy busy. Ever say that? I guarantee you've heard it. It's one of these little liturgical responses, and there's so much in that that is communicated, right? Like, I am so important that I have so many things that I have to do, I don't know why I'm talking to you right now. (laughs) Or, my life is cycling out of control, and will you please help me with, like, something? I'm so busy. And often it is the reality, right? There are a lot of words that we could say that we don't. For example, I'm tired. We rarely say that. I'm worn out. I am completely frazzled. I am about to go postal. I frankly don't have time to talk to you. We don't say that. We may think that, but we don't say that. We go with, I'm busy. And there's no doubt that all of us here are busy. Can we just say that? We are all busy doing something. If you are laying on the couch watching football all day long, if it was on all day, you would be busy doing that. Okay, so we're all busy. We're all filling our time with something. The question is whether or not that something is a profitable busyness or a selfish busyness, because we're all giving away our precious moments and minutes to something. The question is, what are we doing with that something? What are we primarily giving ourselves to? And is that precious investment of time something that is wise? Is it something that is meaningful, that is actually significant? Or here's really the ultimate question. One minute after I'm dead, am I going to be glad that I was busy with all of these things? throughout the course of my life? Am I living in a way that's pleasing to God? Am I living in a way that is healthy and sustainable? Am I living the way that God intended humans to live? Will I be glad I lived my life this way? Now last week we had a wonderful message, and I mean that, by uh, Pastor Dexter Harris, our Gary Campus pastor. And if you didn't hear it, go on the website and listen to it. Uh, But he gave a wonderful message from a famous story about two sisters, Mary and Martha. 
And uh, with it being a holiday, I think many people missed it. But his message was from Luke 10, verse 38 and following. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to do a brief review of that message because largely what I have to say today is the application of the truths found in this particular passage. So let me read it now. Very familiar story. Many, many people like it because we can relate to it so easily. Now, as they were on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into their house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. So here we have a story about two sisters not getting along. I mean, this is sort of a fanciful thing, isn't it? I say that sarcastically. Two sisters having a hard day together. And uh, the story goes that Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus, who is not included in this part of the story, they lived in a little suburb of Jerusalem called Bethany. And they were amongst Jesus' closest friends. He often spent time with them. And uh, he overnighted with them. He cared for them. They cared for him. We see this expressed when Lazarus dies. Jesus stands at Lazarus' tomb. And what does he do? He weeps. In the English uh, New Testament, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Where did he weep? At the grave of his friend Lazarus. That's who we're talking about, that family here. So these are inner circle people for Jesus, which I think ought to encourage us right away because it's so easy to look at the dysfunction in our families and think to ourselves, Jesus must not like us. Like if he... We assume he knows the dysfunction in our family. If he was here, he would just say, enough with you and I'm out of here. No, no. His closest friends display such common human relational dysfunction, and yet Jesus still loved them. So let's all be encouraged by that right now. Amen? Okay. Amen. So Jesus is coming over for dinner, and Dexter made the great point. What do you do when God's coming to dinner? Like, that's a big deal, don't you think? That God would come to your house for dinner. And uh, when God comes to your house for dinner, it's probably not paper, cu- paper plates and Dixie cups. I mean, we're talking about like we are going to, we're putting on the dog here for, uh, that's a metaphorically speaking, um, for, for God. And we are bringing out the fine china. We're, you know, borrowing from friends, whatever. We, I need three more crockpots, and I need this, that, and the other. And uh, so this is a big, big deal. And uh, Martha probably didn't have a lot of advance notice. You know, realize in this day, it's not like there was telecommunications where, hey, in three days we're going to be there. People showed up when they showed up, and then you had to put, uh, put the meal together. So the text here says that Martha welcomed Jesus into her house. And what a wonderful statement that is right there. Is Jesus welcome in your home? Martha's heart was open to Jesus, and so therefore her home was open to Jesus. 
Now, Martha has a sister named Mary. And when you read the New Testament, there are so many Marys, it's easy to get confused with which Mary we're talking about. Mary, the mother of Jesus, not her. Mary Magdalene, another famous Mary, not her. This is Mary, who is also famous in the story, not only because she is a friend of Jesus, but because later in the story, she is going to anoint Jesus with very expensive perfume, a famous story, and that lavish gift of love. She's a woman of great devotion to Christ. But we're not there yet in the story, okay? So we're back here a little earlier in the story, and Mary is just noted as the sister of Martha, and also lives in this home. And Martha welcomes Jesus into her home and immediately begins scurrying around. You can imagine this, can't you? Jesus shows up on your doorstep. What do you do? Right away, you know, if you have any advance, he's getting out of the car right now. You're putting things away. Quick, throw the toys under the thing and do this, that, and the other, rushing around. This is Martha. Martha moves into fast and furious mode, right? She is just now, she's a tornado because Jesus is here and his disciples are here. And by the way, I think we need to quickly note that hospitality and ministry entails preparations, and there is nothing inherently wrong with that. We shouldn't look at this and say, uh, you know, uh, paper plates are godly and uh, fine china is of the devil or something. This is now just, this is the way it goes. Ministry takes preparations. This sermon on this subject took preparation, and this is a godly and a good thing. So there's nothing inherently wrong with what Martha is doing in terms of taking care and making arrangements. What happens here, though, is that Mary, the sister, goes into the other room with Jesus and sits down at his feet. Now, this is a culture that sitting on the floor was much more common. They ate on the floor oftentimes, and so this is not unusual. But the metaphor of sitting at the feet of somebody is a metaphor for listening to them, listening to them. Mary wasn't just sitting there and doing nothing, she was doing something. That's important to know in the story. She was doing something, and the something that she chose to do was to listen to Jesus, to be in his presence, to be near to him. So is this so hard to imagine? One sister fuming that she feels she has to do all of the work, and Another sister oblivious to the pain that her sister is going through. And so you can just imagine Martha now. What I, what I sort of see in the story is the, the pans begin to clang louder in the other room. The sound of slamming cabinet doors. And it's almost like there's a stomping sound coming from the other room. As Martha gets madder and madder that she has to be the one that's doing all this stuff. Until finally she can't take it anymore. Does that sound unusual? Like, I just got to the point, I got to say something. And she goes into the other room, abruptly interrupts Jesus, and says, Jesus, tell Mary to help me with all of this work. And Jesus' response here, I wonder if it might not be what he would say to all of the crazy, busy people right here today. Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things. Jesus identifies the symptoms to the problem. 
And the symptoms of the problem are anxiety and a troubled spirit. I wonder if today that might be a general summary of your emotional condition. You are anxious and you are troubled. And you'd love it if those things could be just like taken away somehow. And maybe you view those things as the problem, as the root instead of the fruit. But Jesus does not say these are the actual problems. He moves forward to what the actual problem is. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. Imagine the look on Martha's face as Jesus rebukes her in front of Mary and the other disciples, because Martha, I mean, she sort of chose the context there. She comes bursting in. Jesus rebukes her, and I have to believe that this would have rocked Martha to the core. I think, I don't think it's ever said anywhere in scripture, but I just view Martha as the older sister. Her qualities seem to align more with the oldest sibling to me, and I say that as the oldest of four in my family. Maybe you can relate to this if you're looking like, am I Martha, am I Mary? The oldest here, more likely, the Martha types, the responsible types. We've got to get things together. We cannot allow this to collapse. You know who you are today. That was Martha, the work harder, work faster type. I imagined her favorite books were The One Minute Manager and Seven Habits of Highly Effective Jewish Women. (laughs) And you can hear Martha, right? Sit down. Jesus, I am not the sitting down type. There are a lot of lame people in this world that are the sitting down type, but I am not the sitting down type type. I am a get it done type. But Jesus points out the issue. He says one thing is necessary. Now what is he referencing here to? Notice again in the text, Mary, all we know about Mary is that she is with Jesus and she is sitting at his feet. And we see in this that Mary, when given the choice between the preparations for the meal And the table and sitting at the feet of Jesus chose to sit at the feet of Jesus. Her value set prioritized something as being more important than the other thing. And that more important thing was being with Christ. And Jesus further identifies Mary's example here. He says this is the good portion. The good portion. The necessary thing equals the good portion equals sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's Mary. Now I want to ask you today, as you look at these two prototypes, which one does your home more closely resemble? Or which one do you more closely Resemble, And by this, I don't mean that you like to set a table or not. I'm talking about the values of your heart and how it expresses itself in the way that you manage your time. Again, it's not like Martha was doing something and Mary wasn't doing something. They both were doing something. They both were doing things that you could argue were needed to be done and were important. 
But one thing was way more important than the other. And that's what Jesus points out to Martha. What Mary was doing was the more significant, the better, the wiser, the more enriching, the eternally significant. And to ask the question, as you look back maybe in 2017, course of your life, are you in the habit of choosing to be busy with the important things, with the necessary things, to use Jesus' words, the good portion? Are you Mary or are you Martha? Now, I want to talk with this as it relates to these crazy, busy families, okay? So let's transition from the story into some application here, because we, we have crazy, busy families, we have crazy, busy people, we have crazy, busy marriages, we have crazy, busy Christians, and there are, one thing that's obvious as we talk about this is there are seasons of life where circumstances that are out of your control require it. There is an illness that comes, or there is the loss of a job, or some other sort of thing like that, that it's not you choosing to be this way or or me choosing to be this way. We just have to be this way. Like we have to go into that overdrive mode for reasons that are out of our control. And you know what we do in those moments? We trust the sovereign, providential hand of God, and we do the best we can, okay? And maybe you're in that kind of a season right now, and we got lots of grace for that, and I think that God does as well. But Martha is not dealing with cancer. Martha has not lost her job. Martha is not dealing with some life-altering circumstance. It's dinner. Dinner. Makes me think of uh, Alan Iverson's famous interview where he just said, it's practice. It's just practice. It's just dinner. This was about Martha's expectations, not Jesus' expectations. I get the idea Jesus would have been okay with paper plates and Dixie cups. Just sit at my feet and then we'll eat whatever and it'll be a well of a nice time. This is Martha. It's not about Jesus. This is about Martha. She chooses of her own volition to go into fast and furious mode. And if she was sitting here today hearing this sermon, she'd be like, yeah, but... And you're right now doing that probably in your heart, but you don't realize, and all of these self-justifications flow out of this, right? My lifestyle and how I live, you don't know my calendar, I don't know your calendar, but I doubt God's coming over for dinner. And even if God was coming over for dinner, there's something that is more important than preparing the dinner, And we see in this how easily we prioritize things that are less important and get crazy busy about less important things. Meanwhile, the things that are actually important, we are not busy about those things. So don't hear this message being like, I shouldn't be busy. I think we should all be busy. I think we should all work hard. I think we should maximize our time. And I think books about productivity and effectiveness and all that are great as long as we are applying them to things that actually matter. So I have some helps for the crazy, busy family. If you're taking notes, number one. We have to identify the idols that lie behind the busy. 
If you leave here thinking we should be less busy, that'll work for like a day. There are idols that lie behind why we choose to invest our time and energy the way that we do. We need to identify those. Now, what's an idol? An idol, we, think to, we tend to think idol is a terrible thing that we worship, okay? Gambling or, you know, I'm making an idol out of drugs or something, you know, something like, oh, it's bad and now I'm, I'm bowing down to something bad. No, an idol is something that has generally some inherent good and it is elevated to an ultimate. It is obsessed over, it is made a source of my identity somehow. Like I am deriving my hope from this thing. So for example, meals are good. Silverware, we're for silverware. Jesus ate many meals and all of them involved preparation. Nothing wrong with any of that. But Martha elevated a very secondary thing to a primary thing. But Mary realized that when God is in your home, the most important thing is him. Get that? When God is in your home, the most important thing is him. Jesus trumps setting the table. So why are we so busy, really? Okay, Begin to ask yourself this question. Why are we so crazy busy? Are we, are we forced into these crazy schedules? Like, do we go to jail if we don't live the way that we're living? And I'm, I'm being facetious here because obviously the answer is no. We live the lives we choose to live. We live the schedules, generally speaking, that we choose to live. There is nobody here that is a victim being forced to live this way. We choose to be exhausted with little or no margin for the things that really matter or the things that when we're dead, we wish we would have spent time doing. And again, the main reason is the elevation of good things to ultimate things. Like what? Let me just give you some examples that are common in our culture today. Uh, my identity and my achievements. My fear of failure. I can't fail. I'm so-and-so. The success of my children. Here's a massive one right here for families, right? My children must succeed because it's about them. No, it's about you. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. The desire for more money, or what the Bible calls a mind that is set on earthly things. Perception by others of significance and importance. I must be viewed as being successful. This is why people rent cars to go to high school reunions. I don't rent, I just borrow. The perception by others of, oh, I did that one already. Affirmation by family, friends, social media. We live in a day where people are living their life asking the question as they live it, will this look good on social media? What kind of weird world is this, right? What lies behind that? The problem is not the social media. It is the obsession, the need for affirmation. How about security in the accumulation of stuff? And I think this is a big one. We must be perceived as having it all together. That definition of a materialist that uh, uh, buying things I can't afford to impress people I don't like. 
Now, what lies behind really all of this? It's the age-old issue that we have, pride and the elevation of self. Listen to what John writes. For all that is in the world, here's a summary of the world that we live in, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. We are living in a world that is forcing values into our homes and into our families that create this psychotic warp speed lifestyle, many of which do not flow from priorities that God himself has for us or even cares about. Mary, I don't, or Martha, I don't care about the silverware. I care about you. And I care that you prioritize me when I'm in your house. So, so much of this is self-inflicted. We choose this for ourselves. Mary saw one thing as being necessary, and it led her to quiet herself, to set a seat. Did Mary know Martha's going to be ticked if I don't help her out? Absolutely. Sisters know these things. But she said, I don't care if Martha is hacked off at me. I'm going to go sit at the feet of Jesus. That priority of life. We could say it this way. Martha was worshiping self while Mary was worshiping Jesus. And that's where busyness, I think, can mask so many issues of our hearts. We, we, we feel okay about ourselves as long as we're busy doing something. One writer says this, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. How true. So I just want to say, can we be honest with ourselves here? We're kicking off 2018. Can we be honest right now and just say, why do I live at the pace that I do? Really? Why do I live the way that I do? Idols are terrible slave masters. And who pays the price for it? We do. It's rarely the Marys who are breaking down and falling apart. It's always the Marthas. So I just wonder, would the start of 2018 be a good time to identify idols that have been elevated in our hearts and are driving our lives and families in directions that are ultimately spiritually empty? Okay. Number two is simply to note that Jesus wasn't crazy busy. I am unaware of any verse in the Bible where it it describes Jesus as hurrying to do anything. Think of that. Like if you say, hey, Jesus, how are you doing? He wouldn't have said, crazy busy. There's no indication that he ever felt like he was behind. The only thing that's close to it is he hears that Lazarus has died and the disciples urge him or Mary and Martha, before he died, are urging him to come, and he delays coming, which is the opposite of what a crazy, busy person would do. Now, I say that because if there was ever anybody who had a right to live at warp speed, it would be Jesus. Anyone here shouldering more responsibility than Jesus? Anyone here tasked with 
something more significant than saving humanity from eternal wrath. Hearing none, I'll move on, okay? And, and yet, in spite of this incredible responsibility, what do we find with Jesus? A couple things to note to you. Number one, he slept. He slept. He slept in a boat once, in the midst of a storm. Martha types would never do that. They'd be organizing the bailing committee. He practiced the Jewish Sabbath, one day of rest a week. He regularly got away to pray. He initiated times of refreshment with his disciples and said, hey, let's get away. Let's just get away from all this for a while. And we look at Jesus, he is the perfect human. We, we know of three perfect humans that have ever lived, Adam and Eve prior to the fall, and Jesus. So he is the embodiment of what God intended humanity to look like and function like. His life was measured, it was moderate, it was balanced, it was restful, it was perfect. So I just say that because we can argue that we have to live the way that we do, but Jesus surely trumps our responsibilities and convicts us of our sense of self-importance. Number three, once we identify the idols that lie behind the crazy busy choices that I, and lifestyle that I live, we need to rearrange our priorities, okay? For a Martha to become a Mary, she doesn't just stop messing with the silverware. She, there's a heart issue here that she has to repent of and to change. And similarly, we need to repent of these idols and honestly look at our lives and say, how can I order my life around a schedule and priorities that represent the redemptive rhythms that God intended for a human being to have? That was a long sentence, wasn't it? and I could never repeat it. I'm not even going to try. Okay, so what does this mean? <clears throat> Let's just start with the most basic rhythm. One day a week of rest. Now you say, why is that the most basic? Because it is found in the creation narrative. God creates the world, and on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested. Now, was that because he was tired, all this creating, I'm exhausted, I need a day off? Did God just like take a day off because he was needing rest? No, he has infinite reservoir, he has no need for rest. He did that for us. He did that to show that the way that this is supposed to function is six days you work, one day you rest. And we just, you know, you can argue whether that's morally required, and there are some Christians that actually practice a very strict moral requirement of a sabbatical day. But at the very least, you can, you can say, that's a really great truth and idea. One day away from the rat race. I like this quote. Uh, Peter Cesaro says that we should view it as God giving his people a snow day once a week. A snow day once a week. If you look back on your childhood, think of all the days you had in your childhood. Many of us would look back on some of the best days that we ever had was the snow days. Now, if you're from the South, you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. You know, 
A snow day for you is, you know, I don't even know. I have no joke coming to my mind. So, uh, but snow days, that day where you're not doing what you thought you were going to be doing. It's totally different. You can't get out. And we love those days. They end up being so sweet to us because it's relaxing somehow. And we actually invest in one another. And it gets us out of that normal routine. It refreshes us. A day of worship, a day of serving others. It can be many things. A day of sleep. There's a thriving church, the pastor of this church in Colorado, he ends every service on Sunday encouraging his people to go home and take a nap. Now here at Bethel, you get those in during the sermon, so I don't have to say that. (laughs) But you hear in that, that, Like, that's a great idea, isn't it? To go home and to take a nap. Did you know sleep is spiritual? You're not, like, more godly if you never sleep. You're just stupid. That's what you are. We need Sabbath. Secondly, practice healthy humanity. There are way too many of us, we live like we're demigods. We live like, you know, there's the hoi polloi, that live in in embodiment lives, but I am the one singular human being in the history of humanity that don't need to live by the same truths that everybody else has to. What do I mean by that? We're made of dust. Did you know that? You're made of dust and the dust you're gonna return. And when God made us, he formed the dust with certain basic needs for any kind of level of health And these include three basic necessities, sleep, diet, and exercise. Sleep, diet, and exercise. How many of us are frazzled because we are failing to live a basic, healthy humanity? We don't sleep, we eat junk, and we ignore exercise. And then we wonder, why do I feel so terrible? I would love it if Bethel Church embodied an earthly, earthy kind of Christianity, where we take seriously sleep, diet, and exercise, and view those as being a part of a basic discipline of a godly Christian. Here's a quote. I once asked a Christian psychologist how he treats people with depression or anxiety. Oh, that's easy, he replied. I give them three pills. I inwardly groaned as multiple caricatures of pill-pushing doctors seemed to sadly be confirmed. After pausing for effect, however, he added, good exercise, good sleep, and good diet. Okay, so you're hearing a sermon today, a little bit about that, and we can say, I want good theology, like I need good, this is good theology, right? Anthropology is a part of systematic theology, and a good anthropology understands that we are made of dust, and we need to take care of ourselves and to prioritize time for these things. Ignore them at your own peril. Number three, allocate time around priorities that heaven applauds. Now we're back to the Martha and Mary story. Allocate time around priorities that heaven applauds. Now the world, the world applauds certain things and too often Christians are trying to hear the applause of the world. I'm encouraging you to think about what are the things that heaven applauds? What are the things in the Mary Martha story that Jesus would say that you have chosen the good portion, that one thing is necessary? 
And if that is what heaven is saying is the big deal, we ought to get a hold of our schedules and our time and to prior, make sure that we are prioritizing those things and to keep the dishes and the silverware from becoming too important to us. So let me read another passage that gets at this. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, that doesn't sound like a family month verse, does it? Husbands, pretend you don't have a wife. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Why? Okay, why, why, why would I do that? For the present form of this world is passing away. What Paul is describing here is the fact that Christ has come. The king, the king has come. And he has conquered Satan. And he has conquered death. And he has conquered sin. And the kingdom of God has come now, which changes everything. And those Christians are people that believe that Jesus has changed everything. Therefore... Their lives ought to reflect like they believe everything has changed and the priorities of the world are not the thing that we're living for. Or to say it this way, the kingdom has come, the king will return, life is short, eternity is long, hell is real, heaven is available to all who believe. And as Christians, that victory and Christ better reflect itself in the priorities and my use of time Because I can say all that I want about believing in Jesus, but if it makes no reflection in the actual priorities according to which I live, do I really believe it? Do I really believe that Christ has come and changed everything? Even things like marriage and grief and parties and commerce, that's his list here. Those are big deals, right? Family loss, gain, and money, vocation. All of it. My whole life's priority rearranged by a belief that the Bible narrative is the narrative of history and it is true and that Christ is at the right hand of God and that this whole thing is arcing towards an ultimate return of Christ. A new heaven and a new earth rewards for those that faithfully serve him. And I just wonder, think of what you're busy with. What dominates your time and your mental thoughts? What what are you busy with even internally? Would those things be super important to you if you found out that you were going to die on Friday? And I'm going to guess that if we knew that we were going to die on Friday, there's a lot of things that right now are really important to us that wouldn't be that important. And there are things that aren't so important to us that all of a sudden we become very important to us. And what the Mary and Martha story is, is basically saying, live for these things all the time. I think there'd be a lot less Martha and a whole lot more Mary going on. So I I encourage you to see your busyness as a reflection of the true values of your heart. It is an opportunity to look in the mirror and to realize, what do I really love? What do I really care about? And here, again, beginning of the year, to just say, is that 
Is that the life I want to live? Is that the life I'm going to be glad that I live when I'm dead? And if not, why not make changes? None of us are victims here. Nobody goes to jail if you make some changes here. We are all making choices to live the way that we do. And wonderfully, God offers a life lived by redemptive priorities. Here's an interesting quote regarding time. John Piper, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Yeah, we should all groan at that, right? And so many other ministry, gospel, kingdom, Jesus things that we could be doing that we don't because we fritter it away with silliness. And I say that to my own heart. And I just think this is our greatest struggle, isn't it? Okay? We're distracted. So many things. And we have no margin, no margin in life for the things that in the end we will wish that we had lived for. So create that margin. Push some things down the list so other things can go up the list. Other things to say. I'm running out of time. I just, you know, it's the beginning of the year. I want all of us to flourish. I want your home to be awesome. But awesome in God's eyes. Your marriage to be like awesome in God's eyes. To hear the applause of heaven for, think of all the good that our church can do over the course of this coming year if we are living by priorities that heaven applauds. I think our families need reformation. And it begins by identifying the idols that we have around the house and in our hearts and replacing them. It's not, it's not, that, it's not, that, it's not that we're just getting rid of idols. We are, we are usurping them with better things, right? We're all busy. I want you to be incredibly, I want you to be crazy busy this year in a biblical way, okay? I want you to, I want you to have the most productive year, especially spiritually, that you have ever had. I hope this is the best year of your life. But the best year in the eyes of God. And this is what allows us to be kind of normal people. We got to, you know, fix the car and mow the yard and take the kids to school and fix the meals and, you know, go to work and do our thing. We have to do these things. But we can do them without living for them. We can do them without obsessing over them. We can do them without finding identity in them. And to reserve our like obsession and our exhaustion for things that matter. Things that heaven approves and applauds. Why? Because this world is passing away. 2018 could be the year. And I guarantee you when Christ comes back, the wisdom of how we live will be revealed in dramatic ways. Live, like Martin Luther said, there's two days to live for, this day and that day. Let's live that way and be crazy busy for Jesus.